I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter number one. Once again, Hebrews chapter number one. And we will be looking this morning primarily at the second half of verse two down to verse number four. Uh, we have spent a considerable amount of time already in these first few verses, which really set the, uh, the very context, the very foundation of what Jesus Christ coming meant, how that Jesus Christ is superior uh, to all others. And we looked last week at the message of his purpose. This morning, I want to deal with really two main thoughts. First, the majesty of his mercy, and then secondly, the magnitude of his name. The majesty of his mercy and the magnitude of his name. Uh, look with me at the verses 2 through 4. We'll just read those three verses. It says, God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's look together first of all at that particular phrase that is used there in verse uh, number uh, two, uh, where it describes that in these last days, we dealt with this last week, God has spoken unto us by his Son. This speaking of his Son, who is the brightness of his glory. This phrase is one of those phrases that strikes you when you first read it. Uh, I'm afraid that many times we've read so many uh, times through the book of Hebrews or maybe through this passage that we, we fail to understand that the brightness of his glory is a reference back to the event of what took place of the transfiguration of Jesus. This is not just a phrase that's given to add some more to the grandeur or the majesty of who Jesus Christ is. This is a reminder of what God the Father had said about the Son when he looked and he said to his disciples, here is Jesus, hear ye him. So this brightness of his glory, this striking example here, we understand that Jesus Christ also, he made the worlds. Uh, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's what John 1.3 tells us. But Jesus Christ was so glorious in his person that the very person of Jesus, God has spoken to us in these last days. Through Jesus himself, God has spoken in these last days. Remember, we talked about last week how the prophets were employed or given over to the, the role or the task of unfolding the revelations which God saw fit to communicate. Now, we understand the things about God, that he has not communicated everything, every single thing about himself. But what he saw fit to communicate, he's communicated through his word, and he has revealed it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think we all would be in agreement with that. Jesus then, in effect, or in reality, is the completion or of all of those prophecies. So when we look to Jesus, we see all that we needed to see, and we see all that God wanted us to know. We are told repeatedly throughout Scripture, it is Jesus Christ in whom we are to look towards. It is Jesus Christ in whom we are to look to and say, He is the one that we look to for our instruction. We're directed to look to Him. Now, in that text we read in Mark chapter number 9, we saw that this, this, this illustration of the brightness of His glory. Uh, Moses and Elijah, by many people's estimation, and if you study out Scripture, these are probably two of the most known and we'll use the word illustrious prophets of the Old Testament. The messages that Moses gave, the message that Elijah gave, here we have in the transfiguration, we have them conversing with Jesus. What a sight this must have been for the disciples to see. If you've never stopped and considered what that must have been like, those disciples standing with Jesus and then Moses and Elijah standing there conversing, speaking with Jesus, what an amazing picture is going on here. What was Jesus really speaking to them about? He was speaking to them about his coming departure, his coming decease, when he was going to go to the cross. The transfiguration is not just about an event where Jesus is in these shining, very bright white robes. He was laying the foundation of the very thing which was on the horizon. Now, how did the disciples respond to that? The disciples wanted to detain them. The disciples wanted Moses and Elijah to stay. You'll recall when we read. They wanted to build three tabernacles. We want to build one for you, Jesus. We want to build another one for Moses. And we want to build another one for Elijah. And Jesus immediately turns them away from that reality. And then we see, of course, God the Father uh, speak to them and says that this is Jesus. I want you to hear him. Now, go over to Matthew chapter 17 for just a moment. I want you just to see a couple things uh, that are different uh, here in this account. Because the way that Matthew describes it and the way that Mark described it is a little bit different. In Matthew 17, uh, we see the same event taking place. There is this same interaction going on. But I want you to drop down to verse number 6 of Matthew 17. And notice, after the bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice of the cloud, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Look at verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. Now that is a bit different than what the account we were given in Mark states. But there's two things I want you to see how they responded. They responded by falling on their face, which is an act of worship. Laying on their face before Jesus is an act of worship. But it also says that they were sore afraid. But I love the response of Jesus. Jesus touches them and says, Arise and be not afraid. 
Now, it's an amazing truth to know that had we been present at that transfiguration event, I imagine we would have had a number of different responses. Uh, I'm not sure what we, what you and I would have done. But for some reason, Mark leaves that little piece of information out. He doesn't talk about them falling on their face. He doesn't talk about Jesus saying, be not afraid. Now, we don't know exactly why, but this is why we study Scripture, compare Scripture with Scripture, because sometimes one writer adds, fills in pieces that another one did not mention. So I took us there because I want us to understand that part of the reason why Jesus came and why the Father told the disciples, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice when they lifted up their eyes, there was only one person standing there with them, and that was Jesus. And there is this picture of how Jesus is, in fact, the brightness of God's glory. All other prophets, it doesn't mean that Moses and it doesn't mean that Elijah's prophecies were invaluable. But what Jesus was clearly declaring is everything those prophets spoke about, everything those prophets said was leading to this moment in time when you would see Jesus Christ, who was in fact the brightness of his glory. It gives us this picture of who are we to worship today. We are never to worship Moses. We are never to worship Elijah. Sadly, some believe we are to worship Mary. We are never, ever, ever to worship Mary. We are to, to look our eyes to one and one only, and that's Christ, because he is the perfect fulfillment of all of those prophecies. This was a striking picture. So when the writer of Hebrews talks about the brightness of his glory, he is referring back to the transfiguration. Now notice how the writer uses this. He says, who being the brightness of his glory. Uh, that tells us that this was not something fleeting. This was not something passing. This was something that was forever. Jesus Christ will always be the brightness of God's glory. Notice it goes on. Being part of the brightness of this glory, he is also the express image of his person. So God has truly, folks, revealed himself in creation. God reveals himself in providence. But the brightness or the radiance of God's glory is only fully seen in Christ. So when I look out at creation, I cannot fully see the brightness of God's glory. Is everybody following? I can't see it all. But when I look to the sun, I see the radiance, and I see the picture, I see the beauty, I see God when I look to Christ. In Christ, God the Father has fully made known the glory of his own character. If I want to know the character of God, I look to Jesus Christ. If I want to know about God, I look to Jesus Christ. Remember Moses in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses was commanded to declare the message of God to Israel? Does anybody remember what Moses had to do? He had to put a veil over his face. He had to put a veil over his face in order to give the message from God to Israel. But do you realize that every time we see Jesus, 
we see the glory of God. In Jesus, we see the unveiled face of God. Now, some would say, well, that goes along, that contradicts what John 1.18 says, that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. But understand what God is saying is that in Jesus Christ, you are seeing the glory of God. You're seeing the brightness of who God is. The writer of Hebrews goes on, continues to describe what this brightness of glory is. The express image of His person. If you'd like, turn over to Colossians 1.15. I want you to notice how Paul used the word and described God in Colossians 1.15. Uh, this is the passage that runs from verse 15 to verse 20 that deals with how Christ is the head. Christ is the, 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 the pinnacle. He, he has the preeminence. And look how Christ is described. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Isn't it amazing that Christ is not just preeminent in heaven, he's preeminent in all things on this earth. Sadly, we have so many Christians today who are living as if Christ is not preeminent even in this life. We seem to have this theology that says, you know, I can't wait until Christ is ruling. I can't wait until Christ is in control. I can't wait until God takes control. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, and I trust that you do, you don't believe for a single second that God has ever taken his sovereign control off of this earth or this universe at any point in time. Some teach that God lifted his hand of sovereignty when he allowed Christ to be crucified. That's foolishness. That's the, that's the very brightness of God's glory is what took place at the cross. When, when God the Father looked at Jesus in that transfiguring moment and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. He's sending a message to the world. And he says, if you want to know the character of God, if you want to know the attributes of God, look to him. I mentioned when we started this series a couple weeks ago that the writer of Hebrews so beautifully unpacks the reality of this idea, this principle, the brightness of his glory. Jesus himself in John 14, 9 says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now remember, he's not talking about bodily eyes. We're, we're sometimes so human, we trip ourselves up. He wasn't even talking about if you would have been walking in those days and you would have been on the streets of Jerusalem before Jesus' crucifixion and you had run smack dab face to face with Jesus. He wasn't talking about seeing Jesus bodily and saying, oh, I see the Father. We have this idea that that's what it is. 
And it means so much more to that. What it means to see the Father through Christ is to see and have a right comprehension and a right understanding of the person, the character, and the offices of God. It's often referred to scripturally as being enlightened. When you are enlightened by the Holy Spirit, you are enlightened to behold the glory of God. You are enlightened to see the brightness of His glory. Where do we see that? We see that in the face of Jesus Christ. And mysteriously, the Bible refers to that we are being changed into that same image. Chew on that for a while. He does not mean that we're being changed into the bodily image of Christ, that we're all going to look like Jesus in heaven. I've, I've heard that taught in a very irreverent way. But do you really think that the God of all creation would make it something so superficial and simpleton like that that would say, yeah, we're all going to look like Jesus. And in that day when I heard this illustrated, yes, everybody's going to be look like Jesus. We're all going to have a beard. We're all going to wear a white robe. That, that is so far of a misunderstanding, and I would say a complete lack of understanding of who God is. It's never been about bodily eyes. It's always been about seeing Christ through spiritual eyes. That's why you and I can't fully understand the brightness of his glory today. You cannot, through human eyes, understand what God was saying when he said, if you want to see the brightness, of, you want to see the perfect picture of who God is, look at Christ. He wasn't saying, make note of whether he had a beard or not. Churches get into endless debates about Jesus' bodily look. Can I tell you today, it doesn't matter at all. That's why depictions on walls and pictures are absolute foolishness, because they're all wrong. That doesn't matter. You know, the only time we're really given a description of who Jesus is and what he looked like is in Isaiah 53, when his body is marred and he's marred beyond recognition. We even mess it up when you try to depict Jesus Christ on a cross. As bad as the Hollywood depiction of what Christ's crucifixion looked like, it doesn't even come close to how marred he was. Now, again, that wasn't just marred physically. Okay, it's not all just about bodily eyes seeing Jesus in his person. But when we talk about the express image of his person, the writer of Hebrews is talking about how do we contemplate Jesus Christ in the glory of the Lord? Yet we're told we are being changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Chalk this up as one of those mysteries I do not fully understand yet. But it does, re it does refer to our new creation in Christ. When Paul wrote in Corinthians that we are a new creature or a new creation in Christ, it was something more than just being a disciple. It's something about this image, this express image. It's something about the brightness of his glory. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This teaches us that Jesus has all power in heaven and in earth. This puts to rest the reality that we're waiting for Jesus to assume the throne. He's already ruling. He's already reigning. Now the problem is, is sin is still in the world. But it's not because Jesus has taken his hand off and he's, he's alleviated or given over some of his power. Just like when Jesus went to the cross, 
He was not giving up any of his divine authority and he was not saying, I'm not God anymore. He was just choosing to not exercise that power at that very moment. He was voluntarily laying down his life for his own. But do you realize that all power being given to Christ was the reward of his obedience unto death? It was the reward of going to the cross, the shameful cross. All things are put under him. Everything that's in the Father's house, please get this, everything that's in the Father's house hangs on him. He is, he is the entire picture of it. And it's interesting that we learn that it's not the Father. Ultimately, Colossians taught us this, it's not ultimately the Father that's going to judge man, but that all judgment's been committed unto whom? Unto Jesus Christ. When we stand before the judgment of God, whether as a believer or an unbeliever, it will not be, in a sense, God the Father judging. It will be Jesus Christ who is judging. I'm afraid people have this wrong notion of how this is going to go down anyway, but that's for another day. I touched on this last week, but notice this power and these, this brightness when he had by himself purged our sins. To purge sin means to remove them. To have sin purged through his atonement means it is removed as far as the east is from the west. He washed his people from their sins in his blood. They are whiter than snow. I was struck this week thinking about the brightness of God's glory, the brightness of Christ's glory, that, that description that you could not have made his glory and you could not have made the white any whiter. Do you realize the purging of your sins, you cannot be made any whiter? When he talks about the purging of your sins, he is talking about a complete purging. There is no sin that has been committed, will be, can be committed, or will be committed that can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, that's not a license to sin, right? That's not a license to say, okay, because I'm safe in God, I can just do whatever I want. No, it, it brings us the brightness of God's glory into even greater focus. When I understand that what Jesus did was so much different than what the priest had to do, the Old Testament priest under the law had to purify the people with the blood, but it wasn't the blood of Jesus. It was the blood of bulls, the blood of goats. But notice it said he purged our sins by himself. Christ obtained eternal redemption for all believers by the shedding of his own blood, not the shedding of a bull or a goat blood. Folks, what this truly means is that if our redemption has been obtained... When God, and, and I'm not, I hope I'm not oversimplifying this, when God goes to look for sin, if he was to go and try to seek it out, if he was to go and try to uncover it, go and try to find it, he would not find it. And it's not because it wasn't there at one point. It's because it has been purged. It's been cleansed. It's been removed. That even the Father can't see it in a believer. Now, if that doesn't bring the brightness of God's glory into a little bit more focus, there's not many more things that will. Because you and I know our unworthiness. Imagine when we're told in Scripture that we will be presented faultless before the presence of His glory. 
and it will be with exceeding joy. You know what the resurrection truly did? This is not new for many of us. The resurrection and the ascension was not just a great event in human history. It actually demonstrated the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. That proved that God the Father was indeed pleased with what he had said at the transfiguration when he said, hear him, hear him. When God the Father accepted the Son, he raised from the dead, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. God the Father was saying, this is the perfect sacrifice. Do you realize how many millions of people have gone down to the grave since Jesus Christ ascended. I'm not trying to be morbid today, but study, study world death rates. You want to be alarmed at how many people step out into eternity? Study the world death rates. You see, sometimes we become insulated because it doesn't hit right where we are every day, and we don't know necessarily someone every day that steps out in eternity. But you realize we're talking seconds. There's not a second that goes by that somewhere in the world, somebody doesn't step out into eternity. Imagine all these generations, all these generations of people die and placed in the grave. And yet Jesus Christ as the son of God who knew no sin, he paid for our sin. He died and was, he was delivered and died for our offenses. He was, in fact, put into the lower parts of the earth. That's just a reference to the grave. But it wasn't possible under any circumstances for him to remain there. Why? Because we understood that not only was he the prince of life, he had life in himself. We were talking in between services today that one of my, and this just came out, one of my, one of my predictions is, is because we live in a society today that this will offend some people, maybe hopefully not here, but since we've decided that we can assign our own gender, which is about as foolish as it gets, the next thing on the radar is man will start to say, I created my own life. Mark my words, man will start to say, I'm the one that created that life that lives within me. And because I created that child within me, I get to determine everything about that. That's where we're headed. We're headed to a place where this is not the end of it. If you think that this is the end of our society where what else, what else can we possibly do? If we can determine our own gender or decide what we want our gender to be, if you think that's where it's ending, we're not paying attention. Man is convinced that he is the ruler of his own kingdom. Man's convinced I'm the ruler of my own salvation and I determine when I live and when I die. But yet, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, is the only one. God is the only one who has life in himself. Because of his life, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he canceled the guilt of his brethren. Death could not even have power over him. When Paul wrote about in Corinthians about death losing its sting... He wasn't saying death's not going to happen. Right? 
He wasn't saying there's going to be any more death. He's just saying that the power of death over the soul now has lost its sting. Jesus rose to the power of an endless life. The head, the body, the head of the church, the first fruits. He was the seal that the Father was pleased. Jesus now is our great high priest. He offered his body up one time. That was the very will of God. The writer in Hebrews makes mention of this in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll, we'll turn there. We've read these passages. Hebrews 10, wherefore, regarding Jesus, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily. Notice, remember I told you to notice this? Standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what's it say? Sat down. Remember I told you there was significance to Jesus being seated. The priest always stood. You know why? Because the priest was not a sacrifice. The priest was just a minister. The significance of what I just said is profound. A priest is, was just a minister. Jesus Christ is the high priest and the sacrifice. Christ is the captain of our salvation. He is the author and the finisher of our faith for a countless, innumerable multitude of people who the only basis of why they will be in glory is on the basis of Jesus Christ dying for them. Jesus, it's told in Hebrews again, says that he sat down at the right hand, notice, of the majesty on high. So we see the majesty of his mercy. He purged our sins. But notice the magnitude of his name. He's seated there at the right hand of the Father. When that Jewish priest would enter into the holy place, as I mentioned, he would always stand. He would perform that service. He would remain for just a short time. And he was only a minister. But Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, sits down not just as a minister, but as a prince at the right hand of the majesty on high. You realize the right hand occupies the highest place. Someone says, where's the highest place in all the world, and all the universe? It's at the right hand of the Father. You say, what about, the, what about the great leaders who have ruled kingdoms? There is none that has ever come close 
to the majesty at the right hand of the Father. You know how much pride man takes in building a kingdom. Do you know how much pride people take of being part of a kingdom? Do you realize how dangerous it could be and is to make our kingdom this world? Do you realize how foolish it is to put your trust and your hope and faith in something that is going to crumble and fall? I don't know when, I don't know how, but everyone in this room, we need to understand that one day, as great of a nation as we live in, this entire nation will crumble. It will crumble. And what we're going to find out is whether or not our hope was in Christ alone or if it was a combination of things. I'm for Christ as long as my earthly kingdom is kept intact. That's why I challenge you, go and speak to those brethren around the world who are living in kingdoms of oppression, who are living in places that unthinkable conditions, and yet they still proclaim the name of Christ. We get shaken to the foundations over a few little rules thrown our way as if our lives are being fully disrupted to the point we can't function. Wait till the whole nation crumbles. You say, that's just fear-mongering. Call it what you want. The Bible says every kingdom that has been raised up has been raised up by God, and every kingdom will be brought down by God. Go back through your history and find the kingdoms that were once great and tell me what they are now. Tell me, tell me about them. They're gone. There were kingdoms led by men who said, listen, I occupy the highest place in all the universe. No, the highest place in the universe is at the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated. That's why he says all things are put under him. The earth is his footstool. Think about that for a moment. To Christ, everything in heaven, everything in earth is subjected to him. He sits as a royal priest on the throne. He's consecrated forevermore. His being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high implies that all things are put under him and he is under complete control. Verse 4, the writer says, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. Here's the magnitude of his name and this will be the final point we'll cover. Being made so much better than the angels. Now, it is revealed in Scripture that the title of the Son of God, who is appointed to be the heir of all things, who is the brightness of God's glory, who is described as the express image of his person, who's described as purging our sins by himself, who's told, we're told that he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, also is described in Scripture as Emmanuel. God with us. God manifested in the flesh. God, who is invisible, could not be the image of himself. This is a deep thought. He could not be the image of himself. And the Son, in his divine nature, listen very carefully, in his divine nature, Christ in his divine nature is as invisible as the Father. Okay, so what was the necessity of God 
putting and got Jesus Christ taking on a robe of human flesh in order that we might see that invisible God. The divine nature of God was united with the humanity of Christ, put in one, so that we have two natures in one person, the person of Christ. That's the very character that the writer of Hebrews is establishing, and he says this, he is superior to the angels. Have you ever known an angel worshiper? You can often spot them. They have this great fascination and obsession with depictions of angels. I was in a house one time where that, that was very much the prevalent view. I don't know exactly everything about their background, but I was struck by the reality. Why are there so many angels on every corner? I mean, every corner, every shelf, every wall, there's an angel there. Do you realize we're not to worship angels? That angels are created beings. They were created by God for the purpose of worshiping God. That's their main thing. And then there was a group of angels who fell uh, by the sovereign hand of God, by the way. These fallen angels, including Satan, including Lucifer, make up these, what we'll refer to just in simple terms for the younger kids, is just the bad angels, right? But what the writer here is saying is that Jesus Christ is made so much better than the angels. And here's why. He hath by inheritance, don't miss this, obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, if you study scripture, you will find this. Angels are named in the scriptures, and I believe this is just by a courtesy of God, They are called the sons of God. But to Christ, this name belongs by inheritance. So when you see it with reference to Jesus, he's the son of God. When he refers to the angels, they're referred to as the sons of God. But Jesus Christ himself has a name that is much more excellent than any other name. You see, you and I belong to Christ by inheritance. We are, we are given the rights for something that we did not secure. We're invited to sit at his table. We're invited to share in the sovereignty of that king. You realize there are governments and there are kingdoms all across this world where there are people who are members of that kingdom who did nothing to earn that kingdom They just got it by inheritance. Sons and daughters are seated at the table of a king who was the one who actually did the conquest. They're just here because the father did the work and you're invited to be seated at the table. Jesus Christ possessed the divine nature. And as a son, he partook of the nature of his father. But something also happened. He also took the nature, in a sense, from his mother. Christ equally took on humanity. He was 100% God, 100% man. He's described 
as the Son of God, which implies his divine nature and he's described as the Son of Man, which implies what? His humanity. Now, folks, we could sit here and say and and argue till we're blue in the face and say, why in the world did God do that? But here's the reality. God did not do anything in vain. God did not just do something just to accomplish. Do you realize that in the taking of that divine nature and that human nature and putting it together, he accomplished his purposes because he has the end in view? Think about creation. He spoke and what happened? It was done. He commanded and everything stood up. You realize the mountains are standing today because he commands them to stand up? Science isn't holding the world up. You know what's holding the world up? God himself is holding the world up. He created and he said, stand there. Stand. But in order to reconcile justice with mercy, I don't want you to miss this, to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy sin, hell, the grave, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 100% man, 100% God, manifested himself in order that he would be revealed to the world, he would suffer, he would die, and he would be resurrected from the grave. That's why Jesus is described as being the Lord both of the dead and the living. You realize today when we talk about the brightness of the glory, we are, of his glory, we are again seeing how you and I have to understand that the very superiority of Christ is wrapped in the reality of the brightness of his glory. I wish in my humanity, I wish I could fully grasp this, humanly speaking. One thing that makes me a little bit crazy is when I cannot seem to grasp a concept. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how educated you are, no matter how many books you read on the subject, you will never, ever, ever fully, humanly understand what the brightness of his glory actually is. Folks, we're not supposed to be looking at our faith with bodily eyes. We're supposed to be trying and comprehending the knowledge of who God is through the spiritual eyes that, have caught, that were the result of the rebirth. Man has been trying to figure out God for centuries. Do you know how many people have died without God because they educated themselves right out of the glory of God? If you have a vision today of the glory of Jesus Christ and you're looking to him for all things, praise the Lord that you have the vision to see it. That you understand when I mention the brightness of his glory, you may not be able to frame this humanly speaking, You may not win an actual debate against a humanist. And I will tell you this, that's not our main goal is to win the debate against the humanist. There are things that are mysterious about God that we will not fully understand until we get to glory. And there are things we have to say. All I can say is what the Hebrew writer was saying is that he was referencing that transfiguration event 
What did I learn from that? I learned that God the Father told those disciples, this is my son. Everything I am, everything you need, everything that is to be is found in him. We don't just sing songs about in Christ alone because they're catchy. We actually believe that. We actually believe that even faith in the Old Testament was in Christ alone. Even though we couldn't see him. Not a single page of Old Testament scriptures mentions the name Jesus Christ, but he's all over it. It is the purpose of God. And in these last days, Jesus Christ has revealed himself to the world in order that man might see and that man might be without excuse. I want to close our time this morning, if you would. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians? And we'll finish with this, and then we'll stand and pray in just a moment. I'll let you remain seated for our, our closing scripture here. I read this to this week, and this just reminded me again, I think of so many things we're living today, and I want to leave you with just a reminder of the hope that we have. 2 Thessalonians 2, the writer Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of our, the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Let's stand together and be dismissed on that encouraging reminder of who we are in Christ. Father, as we bring this time of corporate worship to a conclusion, Lord, we are thankful for the time we've had in your word. Lord, I am certain that not everything that could have been said today has been said, but I'm thankful to know that the message is not mine, that the message is through the power of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be given understanding as we are able.
by the Holy Spirit of God to comprehend, to understand the brightness of Christ's glory. And that, Lord, we would be changed by the truths in which we've heard today. I pray for that unbeliever today that they would be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they would be brought to repentance and belief. Father, we rejoice today that we can leave here encouraged. Those that are in Christ today, we are encouraged that no matter how dark the world around us gets, we have the hope, the blessed hope of the coming of our Savior. May we rest in that truth today. Lord, dismiss us now, and may we leave here rejoicing and edified. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. Thank you very much. We'll see you on Wednesday.